So there's three questions that constantly bubble up in the heart of every man. I, I, I believe this to my core. Question number one is, why am I here? Like, I've been flung into this universe, which is in the middle of nothing, and how did it all get here? Number two, is there really a purpose for my life? And then the third question is really important, is there life after death? Is there life after this life? Now, believers will answer and say, well, God's the answer to all this. That would be my answer. I believe God created the universe and the world. I believe God has a purpose for my life, and I believe I'll spend all of eternity with God. But then there's another group of people called skeptics or agnostics or atheists or whatever who say, well, you know, I just need more evidence. Uh, when it comes to the universe, I understand we don't know uh, how the universe formed, but science has figured everything else out, and I'm sure one day they'll give us an answer to that. As far as purpose, life is what you make it. And when it comes to life after death, I hope there is, but no one's ever come back to tell me. Now, I think the one thing everybody would agree on is these questions are really important. I mean, maybe the most important. And these questions affect how you live your everyday life, or they should affect how you live your everyday life. But here's what happens to most people. These questions bubble up. Is there life after death? But just as they bubble up, the cares of life, the hurry, the busyness of life comes. Uh, an Instagram news feed, uh, a new Netflix series, a sale at a particular score, a discount airline, and what am I eating for dinner? And all of a sudden, we had this casual indifference when it comes to life's greatest questions. Has perplexed me my entire life. Now, what you need to know is whether you answer in the former or the latter, it takes faith. So in my instance, I believe God's the answer to all three, but I believe that by faith. I have no evidence is the idea. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of those things I cannot see. So let's talk about the universe. I'm part of the universe. How did I get here? Well, Hebrews 11.3 goes on to say, by faith we understand. We don't have any evidence, but it's through faith I can understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that everything I see was made by things that are unseen, atoms and molecules. So, so there is no evidence. It's by faith, but can I tell you there are ripples? The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth is his handiwork. I love C.S. Lewis, I really do. I can't wait to see him in heaven. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because of it, I can see everything else. In other words, there are enough ripples around where the worldview of Christianity makes all the sense in the world. We live in a fine-tuned universe. Elizabeth, put up on the screen the beta fish. Now, I share with you I'm a zoo connoisseur. I'm also an aquarium connoisseur. I could have given you zillions of fishes. I was, I was in an aquarium recently where there were, I believe, 60,000 types of jellyfish. Yeah, ooh, like we don't even like the one on the beach where we go. Imagine 60,000. Look at that fish. Look at the color. Look at the brilliance. You look at that, and the only thing that could come to your mind is that was designed by somebody. And here's what's amazing. We're probably the only century that's ever been able to see that under the sea. And then we can talk about the fine-tuning of the universe. We can talk about our moon. We can talk about the right temperature. We can talk about a zillion 
things where you would need sevens to come up on a slot machine from here to California, that this was all just time or chance. So there are ripples all around us. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, said that he believed in God because of the starry heaven above and the moral world within. I believe by faith, God gave me a purpose. Hebrews, by faith, Moses led them out of Egypt. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham. They were torn in two. They were put asunder. By faith, I think we're all following the purpose of God in our life. And then when we get to John 14, Jesus tells us, Behold, I go and prepare a place for you that where I go you may always be with me. By faith I believe there is life after death. Which brings us to our text, week two, because it's worthy of two weeks. John eleven twenty five, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live, and he who believes in me will never die. Does anybody realize how audacious and ridiculous that claim was? Let's forget it was Jesus. What if George Washington came out of Independence Hall one day and said, I am the resurrection and the life? I mean, they would have committed him, right? Napoleon, Gandhi, anybody who would have made that claim would be absurd. Um, so there's a comedian I like, Brian Regan. Any Brian Regan fans in the house? Yeah. He's clean, by the way. And I love this one episode he has called I Walked on the Moon. And he said, you know, did you ever get around a table with a bunch of braggers? Oh, I did this, and I golfed here, and I did this. And then you tell somebody your story, and they said, oh, I got one to top that. Yeah, like little old me, my story's no good. You got one to top me, right? And Brian Regan said just once he would like to be Neil Armstrong, where everybody goes around the room bragging about their story, and then Neil Armstrong says, I walked on the moon. <laughs> I'm the resurrection and the life. Who can say that? A madman can say it, or a person who actually can back up the claim can say it. And Jesus says it to Martha, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, they'll live. And whoever believes in me will never die. And then he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? And I shared last week, that is the question we all have to answer. Do we believe this? She makes this affirmation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. She believes. And I want to tell you, she had no evidence for belief. She couldn't see a resurrection. She had never seen a resurrection. She had ripples. She had heard Jesus teach unlike anyone else. Jesus had been to her home. She felt Jesus' love. She knew he had healed the sick. She had heard things about Jesus. She had never seen a resurrection. Where am I going with this? We live in a world where supposedly seeing is believing, and John gives us this portrait here where believing produces seeing. So last Sunday, I left church, and I went to New York City for a debate. Prominent atheist versus acquaintance of mine who's a prominent Christian. And this atheist isn't like a vigilant atheist. He claims he's the world's greatest skeptic, really smart guy, and that uh, if he's just presented the right evidence, he would believe. Now, I don't think he was really being honest because his opening remark is he wore a red blazer because he wanted to look as much like Satan as he could. So I don't know how honest he really was. But he said, give me the evidence, let me see it, and I'll believe. Now, 
that's kind of what I call an atheist sleight of hand. So if you're watching a YouTube video or if you ever go to a debate, here's an atheist sleight of hand. They want the Christian to defend everything, and they seemingly have nothing to defend. Now, I don't want to get off on this because they do have something to defend, like communism, but we won't even go there. But here's the atheist sleight of hand. Um, we believe what we believe by faith, but do you know they do also? So just like I have no evidence that God exists, they have no evidence that he doesn't. Let's sink in for a minute. I believe there's life after death by faith. They believe there's no life after death, but that has to be by faith because you can't prove there isn't life after death. Everybody kind of get that? It's what I call the atheist sleight of hand. Make us defend, defend, defend. Martha makes this grand profession, this grand confession by faith. But can I show you what her faith produces? Look down at verse 28, chapter 11. We'll get into the text. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town. He was in a place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, they were sitting Shiva seven days, like in the book of Job, comforting Mary. And she arose, and they said, she's going to the tomb to weep. Then Mary came where Jesus was, saw him, fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have never died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see Jesus wept, and look what the Jews say. See how he loved them. See how he loved them. Now, when Martha sent word that Lazarus was sick, her words were, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Now the people are saying, Jesus loved these folks. Which sets up the idea that even people that Jesus loves will get sick and die. That's why John wrote this. That's why we can't be surprised by this. Even the people Jesus loves and cares about will sometimes get sick and die. But the important thing is Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And I think most of you know chapters and verses weren't in the original manuscripts. They were added much later so we could look things up. But I got to believe when the people that added chapters and verses looked at this, I believe they made it the shortest verse in the Bible. They wanted us to stop and ponder this, a God who weeps over us. There's a movement asunder where people will say, well, I can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is mean, and I can't understand it, and there's a movement underfoot even for Christians to dislodge from the God of the Old Testament. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when I see Jesus, he weeps. Now, my wife hates when I say this, but, but when you th see things in the Bible, not Jesus, but when you see things in the Bible about God, like God was sorry that he made man, well, God's a spirit. He doesn't have emotion. He can't be sorrowful. But it's written in such a way that you would understand what sorrow means. But this is why Jesus came, partly why he came, to see that God weeps. 
I believe God wept when Adam and Eve sinned. There's two times Jesus weeps in Scripture. Here at the gravesite, he weeps over man's suffering and death. And in Jerusalem, he weeps over man's sin. When he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who stones the prophets and the ones that are sent to you, you've missed the day of your visitation. He wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There is no God in all of recorded history that weeps over his creation. And you know what really, really ministers to me? You know, Martha gets cast as a busybody. She's eight on the Enneagram. She's making the food all the time. And we always think she's less than Mary. But she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would have never died. You know what Jesus' response is? I'm the resurrection and the life. It's intellectual, which I believe is what she needed, which some of us need. But when Mary comes, this woman, full of devotion, sitting at his feet, he just weeps. He weeps with some. He's intellectual with others. This is the way the Holy Spirit, this is the way God ministers. It's beautiful. fascinates me. Last week I shared that there are no pat answers to sickness and death, to suffering. The Bible isn't full of wishful thinking. Jesus doesn't give an answer here. He said, for the glory of God. In other words, Martha, there's a thousand tentacles to this. There's a thousand things going on you'll never understand in this life, but God's working everything for his glory. That's not a pat answer. It's not wishful thinking either that we're going to be in the sweet by and by because the Bible gives another alternative, which is not a good alternative. We've already had two things in 2020 that really test our faith of what we believe and once again show us we're not in control. In America, with more prosperity than the world's ever seen, we tend to think we're in control. I got my 401k here, and the kids are going to go to school here, and I've got the car that has the best safety rating, and I'm buying organic food, and I'm in control. Until we get the news feed that Kobe Bryant dies. Now, people that are 41 die every day. But when Kobe dies, we're reeling because we're not in control. When the coronavirus comes, 8,000 people die of the flu every year. There's been 19 deaths in America, but we're reeling. And it's another reminder we're not in control. There is a thin space to life. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. Jesus said wars and rumors of wars, pestilence. You know, there is, there is a world we just don't understand. And you know, God weeps. He weeps that we'd ever have to live like this. He weeps that we would have to deal with these things. And the thing I love about this text is this is what I know from life. We only weep over what we truly care for. You might have your favorite car, and you get in an accident, it's total. I don't think you're going to weep for the car. The first thing you're going to say, is everybody all right? And then you're going to get another car. We weep over what we love, and we have a God weeping over us. We are the apple of his eye. Let me put it in human terms. So I'm a dad. I have four kids. I raise them all. I'm in a season of life where I have more money, more time, I can have more experience. This should be my golden age. But you know why I can't fully enjoy it? Because I created four human beings. And I'm tied to their happiness. 
And the saying is true. You're only as happy as your unhappiest child, right? I am tied to these human beings who I love and care for. And I weep when they weep, and I'm joyful when they're joyful. That is God's love and care for you and me, even in the midst of things we don't understand. Little insight into a little bit of the coronavirus for me. This is just me, not you. This isn't dogmatic. It's just me. It's the way I think. So I leave Guatemala, and I'm in Miami, and everybody's, not everybody, a subset of people are wearing masks. And I'm looking at masks, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, we already have earbuds. And earbuds are a sign like, stay away, I'm in my own world. And now we got masks. So now the mask is, like, the only thing you can do is infect me. So stay at a distance. I'm just thinking that. Then I get home and find out the mask doesn't do anything, right? The mask is, can only, if you can't infect somebody else, doesn't do anything for you. And, and I look at all this fear, and I picked up one of my church history books. You know, we just sang a song today, we want revival to come. So guess how revival came in the early church? Let me read you a little church history. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, this is about AD 165, an epidemic of what we would call smallpox today killed somewhere between a third and fourth of the population, including Marcus Aurelius himself. A little less than a century later, a second epidemic, which at its height, listen to this, was killing 5,000 people a day in Rome. For the most part, people responded in panic. There were no guidelines from Homer or Zeus. Theodices, a historian, wrote, how the people in Athens responded during an earlier plague, that they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any inter interaction or care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up, one on top of the other. No fear of God or law or man was restraining influence. What happened in Greece was happening at Rome. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from the dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But then there was a community that remembered and followed a man who touched lepers when they were unclean, who told his disciples to heal the sick, who got in arguments at dinners that embarrassed whole tables. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed his life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pain. You know what came out of all that? Hospitals. There were no hospitals in the ancient world. The rich had physicians. They had personal physicians. This was the start of hospitals. And in the debate I told you about last week, the atheist said he's sick and tired of Christian hospitals getting a tax break, but they won't do abortions. And I'm like, is this guy, is this guy so non-understanding of the history that bore him? Guys, there's always going to be a test of what we believe. There's always going to be a test. We're, we're in peacetime right now. This gathering right now is peacetime. When we go out of those doors, we're in wartime. 
And what do we believe? What do we really, really believe? Not only do we have a weeping Savior, we have a Savior who suffers himself. You know, I just picture Jesus looking at the tomb and thinking about what he's signing up for. Thinking about Gethsemane, thinking about the Father forsaking him. All the power to stop it and yet willing to go through it. Talking about his hour. So watch what Jesus does. Verse 38, Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister who was dead, said, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for it's been four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe in God, you would see the glory of God? Did I not say your faith would, would, would produce seeing? They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of these people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, then loose him and let him go. Now, you guys are like nonplussed, right? Because you've read it before. And you watch superhero movies, and you're overindulged by entertainment. So a guy walking out with grave cloths, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, we're going to Wegmans today. It's two minutes to 12. Like, you realize what happened realize what happened? I mean, it's remarkable. And here's what I love. In that day, magicians and such would come up and have all these oracles and incantations. Jesus says, Lazarus, just speaks to him, come forth. My sheep hear my voice. The Bible says there's coming a time when all the dead will hear his voice. Now I'm going to make a claim and for about 30 seconds, you're going to think I'm a heretic. I didn't go to seminary. For about 30 seconds, you're going to think I should have. Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, I'm not saying it's a metaphor. I, I believe he came back to life. But I don't think it's a true resurrection. Why? Because he came back in the same body, and he died again. Now, the last time I checked, that's not what happened to Jesus and I hope to God that's not what happens to us when we die. See, Lazarus was far different than anything you and I are ever going to experience. Paul makes this clear in one of the great chapters in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, Old Testament, buried, rose again, third day according to the Scriptures, seen by Peter, seen by the 12, seen by over 500, then by James, then Paul says, I even saw him born out of due time. Now, if Christ is preached and he's raised from the dead, why do some believe he's not? He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen, and your faith is empty and it's in vain. Paul said the entire Christian faith is built on one thing and one thing only, the resurrection. To me, Andy Stanley put it best. If a man can predict his death, die, and rise from the, get, from the dead, I'll believe anything that man has to say. We spend all our time trying to get people to believe in the Bible and believe in all these things. No. If a man predicts his death, dies, and rises from the dead, I'll believe anything that man says. 
the resurrection, that's why Easter is so important, is crucial to our faith. It's what our faith stands on. Now, is there evidence for the resurrection? No, we have no evidence or data. But can I give you some ripples? How about seven ripples real quick? Number one, the event was so significant, we changed the calendar. Try and change the calendar today. Number two, the gospel is going into all the world. Number three, the early church was full of martyrs. They're still martyrs today. People willing to die for their faith. Number four, eyewitness accounts. There were over 500 who saw Jesus post-resurrection. How about the four gospels and an explosion of manuscripts? 24,000 autographs. And I think the second closest is maybe 600 for Homer and the Odyssey. What about transformed lives through the centuries and over 350 fulfilled prophecies? About 26 were all about the crucifixion, what didn't even exist when it was written about in the Old Testament. Peter said, when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we did not give you cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses. And Peter said, that's not even enough. We gave you a more sure word of prophecy. The prophetic word was made more sure. So Jesus solves question number three. Is there life after death? Raises Lazarus. But does that prove there's life after death? Well, Jesus was raised from the dead. So what is our hope? Again, Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you. Where I am, you'll always be with me. Listen to what Paul says about our future. Now, if Christ has risen from the dead, he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by one man came death, by one man will come resurrection. Mm. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ, this is unbelievable, all will rise. See, I don't think Christians get this. You died in Adam, that's why you were born with the sin nature, you will rise with Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul goes through it here. He talks about incorruption, a corruption We'll put on incorruption. He talks about a sea going in the ground. He talks about this twinkling, this moment of an eye. What's he talking about? Christianity is the only belief system where one day you, which is your spirit, will once again be rejoined by your body. So right now I'm in an earth suit. This works here. Uh, the future world, this doesn't work. We get a new suit. Now, there's coming a, di a day where you'll be out somewhere and you, somebody will say, uh, how's Bob Gaglione doing? And you'll say, oh my gosh, you didn't hear, he died. Um, which will be incorrect. I will have just moved into a new suit. Now, some of you are thinking, this is a drag. Like, uh, I want to get rid of this suit. I want, it to, I want to be 6'8". I want to be ripped. I want to have a smaller nose, smaller ears, um, Different hair color. It's not about all those things. It's about the environment you'll be in. Now, we don't know a lot about this. We do know this. Unlike Lazarus, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, they said, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. He said, no, come and touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. He didn't say blood. He said flesh and bone. He ate broiled fish. 
He can walk in and out of rooms. Uh, sometimes we sit around and debate because we're weird. What would you rather be, invisible or be able to fly? And I always picked invisible because I can get into all these cool events and stuff. Nobody would know I'm there. I think in your new bodies you're going to fly and be invisible if you want to be. I think 10 seconds in your new body you're going to think, what a drag this was. It's going to be amazing, guys. I don't know what it is. We see through a glass dimly, but it's going to be incredible. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that it's the power of God and not of us, and we shall be transformed in a moment, twinkling of an eye. And this isn't just a New Testament concept. Job said, after my skin is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. Daniel said, many who sleep in the dust of the ground shall arise, their bodies, those to everlasting life, those to everlasting contempt. Ezekiel, in his vision of dry bones, certainly saw the nation of Israel come back together, but no doubt a similar experience you and I are going to have. So if all this is true, and again, we believe it by faith, how do we live in resurrection reality? Let me give you three quick things. The first way I live in resurrection reality is I have to understand the entire creation is groaning, right? It's waiting. It's Jesus groaned, right? He's waiting. There, there is this longing for the restoration of all things. That's why I'm a staunch believer in the kingdom age, what we see by the, written by the prophets and what we might call the millennia, the thousand years reign of Christ. I believe it is truly a time where God will set things right and prove to us there were enough natural resources that if we just, if we, if we did the right thing, people could thrive and prosper. And I think we're going to see that in the golden age. I think with the idea that that time is coming, this gives me purpose. I want to live for something greater. Yes, I want to be wise. Yes, I want to be practical. But I want to live my life for something greater. I want, to, I want to tell people about this world. I want to live like this world's a reality. I want to live in the reality this isn't my only one life to live. There's something greater coming. Second thing is, I think it leads to holiness. Sanctification, which is probably the most misunderstood thing in the history of Christianity. When you become a Christian, you don't become a nice little boy and a nice little girl. You're not good for goodness sake. Holiness means you are separated for a purpose. Israel was separated. They had a purpose. So my holiness is God has separated me for a purpose, and I now live in the way I was designed to live. So let's take addiction. We deal a lot with addiction here. Addiction is where you're promised something that will make you extremely happy, only in an end to be a slave to it. See, that's addiction. It, you come to a place where you're not living the way you were designed. And I think most people realize this, even people that don't know God. Um, there's a verse I keep memorized because I need it every once in a while, especially when I get around people that are in shape. That bodily exercise profits little. So at my health club, these guys that look in the mirror and they wear the tank top and all, you know, yeah, they can open the jam jar in the kitchen, I get it, and they look really good in a t-shirt. But I love to throw that verse out, you know, bodily exercise profits little. The rest of the verse says, but exercise the godliness. You know what the verse is saying? 
If anyone ever exercised to godliness in the way they did physical exercise, oh my gosh. I forget who had this quote that it's not like Christianity has been left untried and undone. You know, it's just never been tried to this extent. Jesus sweating great drops of blood and, you know, this, you know, if we ever, ever exercise in this way, I think we see great results. Uh, There's so many of God's people that are malnourished and living on fumes who haven't really exercised the godliness. But when I see the world around me, it makes me want to press more into God. And then finally, I think of the examined life. The examined life is a life worth living. To live a life knowing that there is a God who one day will reward us is fascinating to me. The Bible talks a lot about rewards. And there's always somebody who says, oh, I don't want any rewards. Look, it says they're there, right? In fact, it says in this kingdom, you'll be put over cities and peoples. I don't know what that means, but I know it's linked to our faithfulness in this life. And so when I look at all that, I think, you know, this is the resurrection reality I want to live in. I'll leave you with this. Ravi Zacharias uh, talks about a story that made the rounds in India when he grew up about a little boy who had a little pretty bag of marbles, but he was always eyeing his sister's pretty bag of candy. And one day he said to his sister, if you give me all your candy, I'll give you all my marbles. And after much thought, she agreed to the trade. He took all her candy and he went back to his room to get his marbles. But the more he admired them, the more reluctant he became to give them all up. So he hid the best of them under his pillow and took her the rest. That night she slept soundly while he tossed and turned restlessly, unable to sleep, thinking, I wonder if she gave me all the candy. (laughs) Robbie said, I have often wondered when I see our culture claiming that God has not given us enough evidence If it is not the veiled restlessness of lives that live in doubt because of their own duplicity, we refuse to give up our selfish pursuits and then wonder if God really exists. The battle in our time is poised as one of the intellect in the assertion that truth is unknowable. However, that may be only a veneer for the real battle, the battle of the heart, which Christ alone, the light of the world, is able to transform The just shall live by faith and faithfulness. That combination comes to trust and delight in God's call and promise to draw near to us when we draw near to him. Knowledge and trust are inseparable handmaidens. That which God has joined together, let no one pull asunder. I don't know that atheist heart in the debate, but I think he's glad there's no evidence because there's a way he wants to live. And we've all been in that place. Because I think God has given us an overabundance of evidence. If we just open our eyes. And when I gave my heart to Christ 30 some years ago, I gave it to him by faith. And I have had my eyes open. And the things I've seen, I will never forget. And I cherish them. I see his hand everywhere I go. The Holy Spirit is my down payment. And yes, I'm going to see things that make no sense to me, like Mary and Martha. I'm going to say things like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have never died. But I'm also going to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And one day, in my flesh, I'll see God. And I'll know him the way I want to be known. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be powerful. So guys, let's live in resurrection reality. Let's live like we really believe. And let's go out of these doors with one thing on our mind, that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a sound mind. And as he weeps over Lazarus, he weeps over a world that doesn't know him. And we need to weep over that world, and we need to be their care, and we need to be their concern. And it's by our love that they would know us.